Mum, nice to see you, Mum. Um, actually, I can't see you, but you know what I mean. Um, this is really tall, Jess. Have you grown? Yeah. Um, I was in a meeting, uh, two different meetings actually, last week, both to do with the renewal of the church in the nation. Makes me sound really important, not really. Uh, one was a diocesan meeting, one was a new wine meeting, which is a, a big network of churches that we're part of. And in both meetings, someone used the phrase end game, which I'm told is increasingly kind of part of corporate language. What's the end game? Some of you are nodding. And uh, I was like, great, the church is now thinking about the end game. I'm sure we've been meant to be doing that for a while. But anyway, more of that in a minute. Uh, and of course, the phrase end game is really saying, what's the big reason we're doing this? What's the ultimate aim of whatever it is we're talking about? Why are we doing what we're talking about doing? Why are we doing these things? What's the big end game when it comes to the church, when it comes to faith, is the question we're going to be grappling with this morning. If you were to ask someone, uh, a sports person, why they're in the gym, they would tell you it's not so that they're fit and healthy. It's so that they're fit and healthy, so that they can play their best possible game in the team or the sport that they're committed to. The end game isn't just being fit and healthy, it's winning. It's doing their best. If you were to speak to an artist who's painting something or drawing something or making something or uh, you know, composing a piece of music, the end game is not just to finish it and go, look, I did it. It's to bring beauty into the world. If you to speak to a gardener, the end game isn't just that plants don't die and it's a weed-free zone. That's an achievement in and of itself for most of us. The end game is that they create a space in which people rest and come alive. What's the end game for the Christian faith? We've been talking about resilient faith over the last couple of weeks, trying to ask this question. In these times of uncertainty, and we had another plot twist, didn't we, this week, with all sorts of economics and finances that people weren't expecting. These times of uncertainty, what does resilient faith look like? How do we, as the people of God, maintain and, and live out a life of faith in such a way that we actually don't just survive, but actually that we thrive. And in such a way that through us, something of God's kingdom comes to bear in the midst of the messy, crazy moment in human history that we're living in. Or put another way, why does resilient faith matter? Why are we even talking about this? What are we aiming for here? What's the win in all of this? I suggested uh, two weeks ago that resilient faith is essentially a combination of two things. It's deep faith and unshakable hope. A deep faith, deeply rooted in the love of God, the ways of God, the church, the people of God, and uh, married with an unshakable hope, this deep confidence that we can have because of the resurrection of Jesus, that at the end of time, everything will be made new, that we too will be raised from the dead and live in eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. Last week, Fraser brilliantly, I thought, articulated something of how that resilient faith uh, is accrued in our lives. Where does it come from? And he suggested, as we looked at Paul's example and Paul's letter here to the church in Thessalonica, that it comes from imitation. That we imitate Christ and we imitate those who imitate Christ well. That we, we learn from one another, that we uh, follow Jesus and we follow those who are following Jesus. It's caught, not taught, ultimately. 
So preaching has its place because it hopefully provokes and encourages and stirs, but ultimately it's worked out in community. It's worked out around smaller tables. It's worked out on those walks you have with your prayer partner, those hangouts you have on Zoom with your best friend from uh, when you were first Christians at university, whatever it is, okay, okay, help me work this out. It's learnt, actually, from being around people who've gone there before you, who you look to and see something of Jesus in. Tell me how you pray. How did you keep parenting so well through the challenges? And what you find is they tell you the nitty-gritty, honest reality that actually, don't be fooled. It was a lot harder than it looks. But I kept going because I had deep faith and unshakable hope. So imitation is key, and that's a theme that weaves its way through a lot of Paul's writings, and actually is something we probably need to pay more attention to in the church. But that's why we make such a big deal of midweek community groups, whether they're life groups or the Men Together group or Women's Revive group, the Deep Dive Bible Study. All of these things are there to help us be together in this with one another. But imitation, Fraser helpfully said, also then leads to influence. But actually, there's a secondary effect. As we follow Jesus and we follow people who are following Jesus, we actually have an influence on those around us, each other. Hopefully, there are moments where you you realize you're challenged by your brothers and sisters in Christ who are pursuing Jesus perhaps more wholeheartedly than you are, who perhaps got more self-control than you are, whose prayer life perhaps is a bit more resilient than yours, and, and, and not being put off by that, but being inspired by that but also have an influence beyond the church. You go through early church history, the way in which it grew was people were drawn in by the example of the people of God, how they lived and how they loved. The biggest witness is actually not someone standing on the street corner with a megaphone declaring doctrinal truth. It's actually when you live a life that can only be explained as a pursuit of Jesus. So Paul writes this in chapter 4 of this letter. We looked at this two weeks ago. Uh, just to, to illustrate the point about influence, he says this. Uh, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Uh, for you know that what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. We'll come back to that word sanctified in a moment. But the point Paul is making here is, more of this, please. I've heard of how you're imitating me and imitating Christ, imitating one another. I've heard of the stories of influence, and now I'm urging you, not just keep going, notice, but go for more. Keep going, go for more. More of this, and because more of that will lead to a deeper faith, a more resilient faith, and therefore more influence. Uh, Some of you will have tracked the news uh, that the great theologian Don Williams, massive influence on the vineyard and new wine, died over the weekend. He was in his mid-90s, an incredible man who I had the privilege to know quite well uh, a few years ago. He invested a lot of time in some of us, and he always used to say to us, guys, there's always more. There's always more. And here's Paul saying, more and more. More of God to know, the depths of God's knowledge, the knowledge of God's love for you to plumb. There's more work to do in and for this nation. There's always more. And so he's urging them and us this morning to go for this. So what Paul, I think, is saying is that resilient faith was modeled by him and his team to them 
He's seen them embrace it, and now he's saying, keep on leaning in. Don't just settle for this. There's always more. Influence in the lives of other people is actually the byproduct of a life lived well, of a deep life in God. So with all of this in mind, I want to wrap up our little mini teaching series by highlighting a theme that weaves its way through this letter and in a sense kind of wraps it all up and helps us to see the whole picture. It's key to understanding the biblical vision for faith, the end game of faith and why resilient faith really matters. We'll come to today's reading in just a moment, but notice um, that it ends with this really simple but powerful prayer in verses 23 and 24. May God himself the God of peace, sanctify you, there's that word again, through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body, remember Jesus' greatest command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's the same reference there. Be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. It's unshakable hope. There's that word sanctify again. It's an important word. It's a Christian word that needs, you know, kind of translating in a sense. As I say, we'll come to it in a moment. But there's another simple and powerful prayer in this letter. It's easily missed because Paul unusually has put it in the middle of his letter. Typically, he would start and end his letters with prayers, these beautiful prayers that we often pray. But this one's right bang in the middle, and it's, as I say, easily missed. It's found in chapter 3. And these two prayers, this one I've just read and the one I'm about to read, they frame the rest of the reading that we heard and we're going to look at briefly in a moment. And if we were to read that list of things that Marg shared, you know, rejoice always, pray continuously, etc., on their own, without this framing, it could easily be heard as a discipleship to-do list. Another set of things that we've got to do to please God and be good and grow. Uh, Alongside, you know, wash up. Remember where your kids are meant to be. Forget to call your mum. I mean, any number of things. My to-do list has about 9,000 things on it, I think. That's not what Paul is saying here. He uses those as illustrative of what it looks like to be people who take seriously the invitation of God to the more. Framed, as I say, by these two beautiful, simple prayers. So here's that prayer from chapter 3. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. An extraordinary prayer, one worth printing out alongside the other one and praying regularly. So put them together. Here they are on the slide together. Hopefully you'll see there's a theme here woven through both of those prayers. Three themes, three things that are common to both of them. Number one, notice that Paul is praying for God to do something in them, not for them to do something. Paul is asking God to do something in and through these people. So may God himself, he prays, the God of peace, sanctify you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. This is a work of God. It's all a work of God. It's all a work of the Spirit. We live in the age of the Spirit. So if you want more of God, 
If you want more of this resilient life in, of faith, you need more of the Spirit, Paul would say. It's that simple. And we're going to make room in a moment, ask the Spirit to minister to us. The second thing to note is that they both speak to this idea of unshakable hope. They both speak to the end of this age and what is still to come. They keep reminding us that this isn't it, that there's an end game being, that we're aiming towards. The end game of faith is not this. It's that, that day when Jesus will return. So notice, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the first prayer, and then the second one, when our Lord Jesus comes. Not if, when. When he comes. Paul has one eye all the time on the ultimate end game. And then the final thing to notice is this word sanctify. It's there again. It's there explicitly in the first prayer, and it's implicit in the second. So in the second one, we read these words, blameless and holy. To be sanctified is to be made holy by God. Not make ourselves holy before God, made holy for God, by God. Made holy and blameless. To be sanctified, sanctification is this process of becoming holy, blameless before God, and therefore whole, truly, fully, newly human. That is the end game of faith. When we talk about resilient faith, it's not just so that we will survive these days, these times of uncertainty, although it is that. It's not just that we will even thrive in this life, although it is that. It's more than that. It's actually so that in and through these days, we will become holy and blameless, truly, newly, fully human, transformed by the grace and mercy of God, transformed by the Spirit at work in us, collectively and individually. The end game is found in the end of the Scriptures, and the Scriptures end with a wedding. And it turns out it's the real wedding of which every other earthly wedding so far is just a signpost, not just, a glorious eschatological signpost. There's a bridegroom, holy and blameless, the son of man, sitting on his throne, ruling over all things, and he's preparing for himself the ultimate bride, the church, his people, who are washed clean, and made holy by him, for him, so that all creation can be united and reunited in one perfect, beautiful entity that will go on forever. A new heaven and a new earth in which all the good things of this life in the physical, tangible, are found expression. So those paintings and that garden and those sports and all the things that we create unto the redemption of creation find their right place. And we are at perfect union, finally, with God. That's the end game of resilient faith. It's a work of the Spirit now for Jesus. It's happening now for them. There are huge benefits right here, right now, but it's ultimately for that. And part of our challenge in our cultural moment is that we don't live with long-term aims and objectives. Naturally, our culture is not like that. It's very instant very quick. 
but we're all called to play this long game as people of faith. So this matters. It's not optional keen Christianity. It's the point of it all. That's why we're here. And the reason why resilient faith matters, therefore, is that without it, we all too easily give up. It's very tempting, isn't it, on any given day to give up on faith, to just dial it down, a bit too hardcore. People start asking questions like, taking a bit seriously, aren't you? Well, yeah, it's a matter of life and death, actually. Actually, people start saying to you, well, you know, you're kind of freaking me out. Or actually, it's difficult because it comes with challenge in the cultural moment we're in, the context. I understand all of that. Easy just to kind of become a bit half-hearted and pick and mix. But in doing this, we miss out on what God has for us. We miss out on what Jesus died for. And in doing that, we actually stop being the kind of people that God can use beautifully and powerfully to reveal himself to the world around us. And remember, we see throughout the New Testament, don't we, that uncertainty and challenge and opposition and suffering and persecution, not that any of us here are persecuted, but many of our brothers and sisters are, they can all be things that hinder and thwart our faith, for sure. But actually, God always uses them to grow our faith. Kind of one of the paradoxes of the kingdom. There is joy in suffering. Resilient faith often comes in the hardest of times. And we lean in, choose again, despite the data, despite the circumstances, trust God. It's through a people made in the image of God who bear his name and go in his power, who lay down their lives who lay down their crowns, leave it on the high altar in Westminster Abbey or the prayer place in your home each and every day and say, God, make me new. Do a deep work in me. Sanctify me through and through. I might be holy as you're holy because in becoming holy, I become whole. And in being whole, I'm someone that you can work beautifully through more than ever show the world that really needs to know it more than ever the promises of God the goodness of God so it's a work of God but we're not passive we don't just kind of turn up say come Holy Spirit and then kind of go about our day there's something way more intentional required of us and we talk about this a lot we talk about practicing don't we the way of Jesus there are things that we are to do and there are things that we are not to do. And those two things put together, done in community with each other's help, move us in the direction of the end game. And so we come to this list in chapter five. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you. In Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. It's not meant to be an exhaustive checklist because there's other things that the New Testament writers would say that we'd probably add to this long list. 
It's there as a guide. It's there as something to give us something tangible to say together as we pursue the more. Here are the things that we need to cheer each other on for. Here are the things that we need to help each other not do. Here are the checks and balances on community that we need to make sure we're looking out for. We spent a whole teaching series, didn't we, looking at choosing joy, rejoicing always. If you missed that, it's all on our website and YouTube channel. We've talked about praying more than ever, increasing the amount of prayer we do. We've increased hungry, our monthly, now our monthly gathering of worship and prayer. We want to raise the faith. We want to fuel what God's doing in prayer. But Paul here says pray continually. Haven't quite got there yet. Do we quench the spirit? Individually and collectively. That's the line that stood out for me personally. When the people of God who have prophetic voices, prophetic gifts speak, do we hold them as a gift and sit and weigh them? God speaks. It's a list. It's not, as I say, meant to be prescriptive or restrictive. It's simply there to give us insight into the postures and practices that we need to mainline and prioritize and keep going on, even when it's hard. Actually, particularly when it's hard. And we need each other because it's hard. I mentioned Don Williams earlier, the the Vineyard New Testament theologian. One of the other things he always used to say to those that he mentored was this. Don't give up. Don't give up. Help each other out. And don't take yourself too seriously. He had this kind of joyful laughter. And I was reminded of this little video clip, which we're going to show, which is just to slightly lighten the mood, because you're all looking very sombre. Because this is a big deal, right? Um, Which is tenuously linked to what I'm saying, frankly. Um, but we'll kind of hopefully illustrate the point. So we'll play that now. The line is baked in a buttery, flaky crust. Baked in a buttery, flaky crust. Baked in a buttery, flavored crust. Baked in a buttery, flavored crust. Bake in a buttery, crispy crust. Flaky, I like flaky old again. <laughs> so you should have a two pound of bread. Bake in a buttery, bake in a buttery, uh, crispy crust. That cool? Flaky. I thought I should. Okay. <laughs> bake in a buttery, flaky crust. You should have had me do that. Oh, yeah, she does that good. Bacon and buttery flaky. Bacon and buttery crispy crust. Damn. Crispy. Flaky. Bacon and buttery flaky crust. Did I screw up again? I did. Bacon and buttery flavor. Flaky. Bacon, buttery, 
gratuitous use of a very funny clip. Um, but you get the point, hopefully. It's really important what we're talking about. We need each other's help. But actually, along the way, one of the things that will help us is if we just rejoice in the messy reality of it all, that we actually come together, we celebrate life, that we big each other up, we give, don't give up, and we've got humility. There she is, flaky, flaky, and then when it's her turn, but he just noticed, he doesn't kind of go, you know, he's just having some fun. Apparently that's a proper, they're a legit married couple rather than actors. And um, they became world famous for a while. Um, Jesus was a lot of fun to be around. We need to make sure that as we really take seriously this pursuit of the more, uh, we have fun along the way. Um, one of the biggest witnesses is always going to be that we love each other. And one of the ways we love each other is by actually helping ourselves not take, us, take each other too seriously, take ourselves too seriously. You get what I'm trying to say? So as we finish, I want to read those two prayers again as a blessing over us. I'm going to read them from the message paraphrase, which just gives us some different language. And then we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to minister to us. But let's take a moment before we do that, just to be still. Here's my question for you this morning. Have you got the end game in sight? The advantage of this big end game in sight is that it gives us a plumb line. It gives us something that navigates us through whatever's going on and reminds us that it's going to be okay. We know how it ends, this story, and so we can set sail confidently. When we lose sight of the end game, the the ultimate point of all of this, we so easily get distracted, don't we, and disoriented, but with our eyes fixed, as Paul says, on Jesus, we can keep going and embrace them. Let's be still for a moment. This is the first prayer. May God, our Father himself, and our Master Jesus, clear the road to you. And may the Master pour on the love so it fills your lives and splashes over onto everyone around you, just as it does from us to you. May you be infused with strength and purity filled with confidence in the presence of God our Father when our Master Jesus arrives with all his followers. And may God himself, this is the second prayer, may God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together 
spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. If you're able, would you stand? The way he does it is, as I said, through the work of the Spirit. We want more of this life God has for us. We need more of the Spirit. And we believe here at All Saints that the Spirit isn't some sort of theory or distant expression of God, but um, an expression of God that draws near, that we can know and experience God's presence, his power and his strength and his work tangibly, manifestly. When we gather, when we're on our own, Paul says elsewhere in his writings, be filled with the Spirit. Deep, deep work. It takes time. And it's really simple. I think we just invite the Spirit to minister to us. So if you're comfortable with this, I might encourage you to close your eyes so you can focus and perhaps put your hands out as a physical posture to communicate to God. You're open to receiving this gift of the Spirit, this work of the Spirit. And then we quietly pray in our hearts, come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit.